Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Welcome to episode 71 of the Healthy Gut Podcast. Today's episode means so much to me. I had such an epiphany listening to this podcast with Diane and we talk about disordered eating. This is a subject that is incredibly close to my heart because I myself experienced an eating disorder in my teenage years and as I went through today's interview with Diane I realized I still am very disordered in my eating so it was a real like oh my gosh (laughs) interview for me and it'll be really interesting to see if you find the same as you listen to today's episode. I'm seeing in ever-increasing numbers amongst my fellow CBOAs out there that we are becoming very fearful and very nervous around food. And it's totally understandable. Food has been making us feel sick for quite a long time. But I'm really passionate about helping others who are in exactly the same boat as me not be so afraid of food because food is wonderful. It's our life source and it really should be enjoyed. And without it, we wouldn't be sticking around for very long. So we really do need food. Before I tell you a little bit more about Diane, I wanted to let you know that I've got two really exciting things that have happened. The first is I have launched the brand new website for The Healthy Gut and we've had a little bit of a website address change. So we're now at thehealthygut.com and the site is great. Uh, It's a lot faster than it used to be and I would love for you to go and check it out and give me your feedback. What would you like to see me bring to you on my new website? I've got so many options now with this new site and I'm so excited about what I can do for you. So head to the podcast page, thehealthygut.com forward slash podcast. And that's where you'll see not only today's episode, but all of the past episodes. And if you haven't had a chance to go through the past episodes, I really strongly recommend you do. We have got such amazing information that has been shared with us for free. And another really exciting thing to tell you is that because I've launched my brand new website, I wanted to give you a little something something to say thanks for sticking with me. Thanks to all of you who might have experienced my old website and found it a little frustrating. So I've got a massive 20% off everything on my site That's absolutely everything you can buy via my website is now discounted by 20%. It's a little brand new website sale. All you need to do is head to my website, thehealthygut.com. And when you head to the checkout, you just enter new site 20. That's new site, S-I-T-E, 20. And that will automatically discount 20% off everything that is in your cart. So it's a really great opportunity, guys, to go and buy one of my SIBO cookbooks, a SIBO meal plan, book in a one-on-one SIBO coaching call with me, or even book in for a SIBO shopping tour or a cooking class. There's so many things that you can do and get 20% off. Today's guest Diane Fairhurst Ryan is currently the executive director of Mirasol Recovery Centers in Tuscan, Arizona. Mirasol specializes in the treatment of adolescents and adults with eating disorders, trauma, anxiety, depression, and substance use disorders, including exercise compulsion, orthorexia, and GI dysbiosis. 
Diane observed the high prevalence of SIBO and its co-occurrences with IBS and other GI conditions and has been researching these connections in the treatment centre population. Mirasol engages in a wide variety of integrations in the pursuit of full recovery. Diane believes that is the power of these body, mind, spirit modalities that provides the optimal environment for healing. I hope you enjoy today's episode with Diane and don't forget you can get the full transcription from today's show by simply joining up as a Healthy Gut podcast member. It's free to join and you get the full transcription and some special bonuses when you become a member of the Healthy Gut podcast. To do that, all you need to do is head to thehealthygut.com forward slash podcast and you'll see the note there to join up. I hope you would enjoy today's episode with Diane. I know I learned so much about myself. It has really spurred on a new course of direction for me. Enjoy today's show. Diane Ryan, welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast. It's great to have you on the show. Well, it's so great to be here. I've been so looking forward to speaking with you, Rebecca. We met in New Orleans at the Integrative SIBO Conference and your presentation at that conference just hit such a nerve for me uh, because it was you were talking about uh, eating disorders and the correlation with SIBO and I myself have experienced very disordered eating in my past and you know it just resonated so profoundly with me so I ran up to you at the end of your presentation and said please could you come on my podcast because I know that Disordered eating is such a, a common experience for so many of us with SIBO, and I'm really looking forward to talking more about it with you today. But before we dive into disordered eating, I'd, I'd love to talk a bit about your background, how you came to work with people who are experiencing eating disorders. Well, actually, I came out of a tradition of substance abuse treatment. Um, I was working with individuals with drug and alcohol addiction and trying to put together, there was, there's been very little overlap between uh, any kind of nutritional support and exercise and recovery from substance use. And it always struck me as odd that um, candy bars were one of the best sources for trying to keep people sober and how ineffective that was and how if people were going to try to repair their lives, how poor nutrition was going to be helpful at all. So I sort of began investigating that, um, and that was sort of parallel to my own journey um, in recovery. Um, and so we developed programs for, for, for you know, trying to rehabilitate the nutrition of, of people when they're in recovery and, and get them on, a, on an exercise plan so that they could start feeling better physically as they did the emotional work required to stay sober. So I began to realize that there was a lot of people for whom that was not going to be an easy fix. They were going to have, that, that there was, um, Eating, disordered eating and, and um, a tremendous amount of, of disaffection with the way their bodies looked and how their bodies functioned. And, and I really got interested in, oh, how is this going to play out in terms of, of how their recovery is going to go long term? So I was working in the exercise field too, and there was a, certainly a lot of dysfunction in terms of, of eating and um, weight management and trying to keep the calories and the weight and, and you know the calories burned and all of that together in a way that really seemed to be negatively impacting their quality of life. So anyway, I just got really interested in that. So I went back and got a, um, a degree in counseling psychology so that I could begin to work with people more on an emotional level rather than just on the physiological level that I'd been really hanging out on primarily. So, um, and I did an internship actually here at Mirasol, where I am now, um, and I really fell in love with the eating disorder population, with the, with the drive and the innate desire for wellness that a lot of people have um, combined with the complexity of eating disorders. I mean, they present in many different ways, and they're really so intertwined with people's identities that it's really, um, it's a complicated thing to treat and, and to really approach people where they are and work with them from that place. And sometimes it's a really long-term process, but, um, but I found, I found the people that are in the field, both in the field and the people that are being treated to be just wonderfully creative and, and compassionate. And so I've just stuck around. So, um, and then trying to find different 
different interventions, you know, trying to approach the same issue, which is like, how do we treat people that have this disorder that is so permeating their entire being and their way of being in the world? How can we really help people shift their perspective, you know, begin to treat themselves in a different way and see themselves in a different way so they can have a different relationship with themselves and with other people and with, of course, the larger world around them? Let's talk about who these people are and how um, many people are affected by um, eating disorders. Um, probably. Well, I'm, I'm not sure what the, what the statistics are in Australia. In the United States, there's about 30 million people currently, um, and they are primarily women, although there's a growing population of men that are affected. I think there's always been a lot more men. There just hasn't been the awareness, and there's been, you know, there's a certain amount of stigma associated with eating disorders that, uh, that applies to men even more. Um, there's also a growing recognition that LGBTQ populations um, struggle with eating disorders tremendously. Uh, a lot of that is due to bullying and trauma. There's a lot of trauma usually in the developmental stages of, of LGBTQ youth as they move up um, and, and a lot of body dysmorphia. So so all of those things go together with an increased rate of eating disorders. So so there's about, and probably only about, I'd say 60% at the most uh, percent of people get treated for eating disorders over the course of their lifetime. So that leaves a lot of people um, untreated and suffering. Many people have probably heard of uh, bulimia nervosa and anorexia. Um, what are some of the, uh, can we talk about some of the types of disordered eating that uh, I guess have been categorized by a name? So in, in terms of anorexia, anorexia is usually kind of the one that's most, gets, gets the most media attention because those are people that you can recognize at least some of the time by looking at them because it's characterized by sometimes very extreme weight restriction and low weight. So a lot of the Instagram pictures that you'll see um, reflect people that have pretty severe forms of anorexia. It really just reflects people who restrict their calories, restrict their food for the purpose of controlling their body appearance and their body weight. Um, there used to be a criteria that you had to be amenorrheic in order to be anorexic. That's no longer the case. Obviously, that wouldn't tell you much about men. Um, but there's also um, a very, very severe fear of gaining weight and a, you know, a, a distortion when it comes to viewing your own body. It's, like, it's very oftentimes people that have anorexia see themselves as much larger than they really are. And they really, you know, telling them that they aren't just makes them think that you're not telling them the truth. So there's a lot of distortion that's involved. So that's, that's the way to characterize. And, and probably in terms of co coming to treatment, probably 30% of the people that come to treatment suffer from um, anorexia nervosa. Mm, okay. And and then bulimia, which was actually what I experienced, particularly through my teen years, uh, that was my approach to disordered eating was the binging and the purging. But um, can we talk about bulimia as well? Sure, sure. Bulimia is, is, is more common than anorexia, and it certainly starts in the teen years. I, I hear most of the teens that come to treatment, um, usually they taught by their friends. Sometimes they've heard about it in health class as well. But it involves primarily eating excessive amounts of food, you know, otherwise known as binging, and then somehow managing to get rid of the food, generally through purging. Um, there's other ways to get rid of um, excess calories or any kind of calories, and that's through exercise or through laxative abuse um, or through restriction and then purging later. But primarily, it's the act of vomiting um, that allows people to get rid of the food. And the interesting thing about bulimia, and I'm not sure that people are very aware of this, is, and I don't know about, you, you may have experienced this as well, it's extremely addictive. The act of, of binging and purging releases serotonin in the brain, and it creates a cycle that's, that's almost like what happens to alcoholics and drug addicts. It's really a very, very addictive cycle. So it's really, really hard to break that pattern once you've established that. Mm, that's interesting. I didn't know about that, about the serotonin, but I found it very addictive um, myself. And it took, uh, it was interesting. I self-healed uh, from it after years of, of doing it. Um, but I, I really, it was a really slow and steady work in progress for me to, to really break that cycle and break that addiction. And it's really interesting that there was actually a chemical component um, going along with it. I, I had no idea. That, I love I love my podcast because I learn something every single time. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's really important to know this because for people to understand that it isn't just, there's something, I'm just weak. Uh, I don't have the discipline. I can't stop this. Why can't I stop? I want to stop. I can't stop. And then there's a huge amount of shame that's attendant with that. And that really keeps you 
even more stuck. So it even prolongs what's already a painful process. So I think it's really important for people to know that this is not something. And the fact that you, you know, I mean, you're really to be commended for having been able to break the cycle, um, you know, on your own, because not that there's, you know, obviously help is available and, and it's, you know, it's, it's really, really difficult to break through this without getting help. Mm. And something that you you said, which was around the shame component, I was incredibly ashamed of what I was doing, but I felt overly compelled to do it every time. And so much of it I now know through all of the uh, support I've had through psychologists, uh, having been a survivor of sexual abuse and, and pretty significant bullying in my teen years, um, it was a real mechanism for coping for that. And so I used it as a way to, uh, you know, I hated myself for what had been happening to me. So I used the purging as a way of almost cleansing and um and it was really when as as I got older and I started to hate myself less that the desire to purge and binge lessened but it's very much its presence in my life and probably will continue to be you know whenever I go into stressful times that urge to do that reappears and or if something bad happens in my life then then that's my go-to position so I really have to remain present with it as an adult to say no we don't need to go there Rebecca and let's use some of your other coping mechanisms but I, I couldn't have got to where I am today without the psychological support I've had through some amazing um, therapists in my time and um, when you were at the conference you mentioned some some what I felt was perhaps some new conditions that that my listeners might not have, have heard of, um, which I found very interesting. Now, the SIBO community hear the term orthorexia used quite a bit, but I'd love for you to talk about what that actually means. Well, it isn't, it isn't a, kind of a diagnosable condition, you know, in terms of a mental health uh, diagnosis that you would write down. But, but certainly orthorexia is one of the most uh, damaging conditions that we see in people with disordered eating because it go it fits so closely with what many people consider to be healthy eating. I mean, everybody, you know, it's like you're doing something that's virtuous. It's like if you're totally committed to eating food that is, quote, clean and pure and organic and you know, locally sourced and all of those things. Now, all of those things are their their values. They're important values for for many of us, and and they're kind of foundational principles for us. But it's a matter of taking it to extreme to the point where my spiritual fitness, my f- view of how I am as a human being, is measured by how I eat, how cleanly I eat, how particular I am about what I put into my bodies, to the point where I don't allow anything that doesn't fit into these particular car- you know categories to pass my lips. So it's very, again, it's almost in a way, an, a way of restricting your experience and anything that does that is going to have a consequence in terms of your emotional well-being. But, but we see that a lot. And I think in the naturopath community, there's a lot of, um, I mean, that's certainly a, a, a heavy part of the population that, that comes into the office is are going to be people that are following what every, what the world considers to be really a, you know, phenomenally, um, approved diet. And yet it has these, um, you know, consequences for emotional well-being because it constricts your experience. And and it's a kind of a, it's, it's almost an obsessive compulsive um, pursuit. And it means that you're a good person. And of course, just because I eat, be, eating kale is good for me, but it doesn't make me a good person. You know, So it's a very interesting, but, but teasing this out in terms of, of how this plays out in somebody's experiences is, is a really, really challenging piece. But it can, it can, people are, it, it can be life-threatening. People take this to extremes and they really will not eat anything that's, that's come from a particular place and prepared in a certain way. So, And this is something that is very prevalent in the SIBO community because for so many people, they've been put on restricted diets, they've been told not to eat anything else other than that restricted diet, to follow it to the T. And I myself, when I first got diagnosed with SIBO and I followed the biphasic diet, I avoided every other food that was not on that diet like it was poison. I would just, I I was rigid in my approach. Again, this is my experience with my approach to food. And I was rigid in it. I preached about the virtues of the biphasic diet. Um, I lambasted people who were eating other foods saying, how could you? How could you eat all that gluten or that sugar or those processed foods? And I became just 
over the top. And I know so many people listening today will be thinking, oh, yeah, I know that. That's me. I'm really obsessive with my food intake because I've been told by my doctor, my naturopath, my health professional that to get well, I can't eat these foods. How how do people start moving beyond that, particularly when a doctor has told them to follow a diet protocol? Well, I think it's, you know, that's such an interesting thing. And, and I, you know, I'm interested, I know you've had experience with this. It's like when you go to a doctor for help, I mean, that's the healthcare professional, their motivation is to give you what it is that you want. And as patients present, they're looking for an answer. It's like, so if, if, if I can tell you, cut gluten out of your diet. And I think there might be, you know, there might be some validity to that. But if I think that I'm going to be able to help you by telling you to be lactose free, or, or I'm going to do some tests on you. And I'm, cause I, cause I want to help you. I want to help you feel better. Um, and so I think that sometimes doctors offer these um, remedies and, and without perhaps considering the whole, you know, the, the whole picture and the whole picture is, you know, am I going to be able to go to have a, piece of chocolate cake at my two-year-old daughter's birthday party. And and you have to weigh the benefits of not of taking whatever this particular offensive food is out of your diet with what your life is going to be like. And and you know, what are the going to be the consequences of that? Um, but I know doctors a lot of times, you know, it, it's it's interesting because a lot of them are uneducated about food at all in my experience. They wouldn't know, you know, th- you know, they might have heard of gluten, I would hope, but a lot of times they really don't have any nutritional information to offer. But if they do, you know, then there's kind of standard remedies. It's like if you if you're having problems with your gut, you know, it's you know, to take lactose and gluten out of your diet is kind of a it seems like a like like a reasonable thing to say to people. It's not going to harm anybody to do that. And they don't realize that it actually can be harmful to be able to make those kind of recommendations. Mm, definitely. And I hear so from so many people who are in situations just like that where they've got a, a special event coming up or they're going traveling or they're going on vacation and they're terrified of what they're going to eat because they, they say things like, but it's not on the plan or will I bring my SIBO back because I have a slice of cake? And we won't, we won't bring our SIBO back because we've had one slice of something. We might have some symptoms, particularly if we've got undiagnosed celiac disease or um, non-celiac gluten sensitivity, but uh, that food itself isn't going to damage us for the rest of eternity unless, of course, we've got an underlying condition, but it can feel like that. Um, there's another condition uh, that you mentioned uh, when we first met around the restriction of food. Are you able to talk about um, that condition, A-R-F-I-D? Right, right. So ARFID, ARFID has sort of just come to uh, the attention of the healthcare community in the last maybe just two years. I mean, it's it's been around um, certainly much longer than that. But, but the, those initials stand for avoidant and restrictive food intake disorder. And about 14% of the people that present um, for treatment have ARFID. And really what that is, is it's, it's a lot of the exact same symptoms as anorexia in terms of the restriction without the fear of gaining weight. There usually is not the body uh, component where you have some concerns about body weight or appearance. It's just really more about the food specifically. So it can be a functional uh, a functional problem where someone has had issues with swallowing. A lot of times kids, if, if kids have seen somebody choking or going through some kind of a you know, an episode like that, they can become very f- afraid of the actual, you know, the, the functional aspects of eating. Um, there's, there's always an un- emotional underlying component. I mean, that, that goes without saying, but, but the, this has some other different components to it. So, you know, if you see somebody like that and they don't have the fear of weight gain, uh, it's, it's kind of hard to diagnose and they have to be treated in a very specific way. It's really tough to treat it. Um, you have to have behavioral interventions to go along with the nutritional rehabilitation piece. Um, but it can be pretty scary because a lot of times people just, they just, they, sometimes people have a, I don't know if you've encountered people that have a, they have a terrible fear of either choking or vomiting. Um, some, sometimes kids that have had the flu and they've, you know, they've been sick to their stomachs and vomited and then they're just absolutely horrified of that. And so the only way to really prevent that from happening is not to eat food at all. 
and it also can be very restrictive in terms of the types of food down to the, you know, not just the type of food or the, or the, or the, you know, which kind of food it is, but even the brand of food that it is. So, so they get extraordinarily restricted in terms of their food choices. So it doesn't allow them to be healthy and develop. And are you seeing this in kids? And I'm just thinking, you know, of the, of the um, parents that I hear from predict predominantly mothers who have kids who have been sick, they're young kids, and they're reacting to a lot of food. So then the kids are then self-selecting and saying, oh, no, well, last time, mummy, I ate that. Um, When you gave me that sandwich, I had a really sore tummy, and now I don't want to eat sandwiches ever again because the association is sore tummy or whatever. Is that Are you seeing that coming through with kids and, and even adults? Yes, absolutely. And it is a little bit, we see this in a little bit younger population than the general, because again, because of the body image piece doesn't usually kick until a little bit older, but that's, you know, it's not, it's not completely coincident with kids that are considered picky eaters, but there are a lot of, if you, if you talk to moms that are concerned with their kids that are picky eaters, that will often be a hallmark of that and, and kind of a, you know, a red flag that allows you to look deeper about what's really going on. And then another one that um, fascinated me was binge eating disorder. So I knew of um, bulimia with the binging and the purging, but I, I guess I hadn't stopped to think about, well, what happens when you don't do the purging? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's actually the most common eating disorder. Uh, it's it's another one that's fairly uh, recently recognized in the medical community as a, as a true disorder. And not everybody that is overweight or obese has binge eating disorder, but but again, it's it's really has to do with a out of control emotional response to food without the compensating behaviors. So, but there's a sense of being out of control, a sense of eating till way past fullness, uh, a sense of really disliking what's happening and and self-loathing. So there's all of these emotional pieces that accompany this while the, while the, the act of binging um, is felt to be soothing. So there's an out of, but there's definitely an out of control aspect to that when it's happening. Mm, and, And I'm hearing from people and I know I've done this myself, particularly coming out of the restricted diet or even people that uh, have been put on these restricted SIBO diets and then they, they'll make comments like, I just went crazy and I ate everything. I ate everything in the house. I couldn't stop and now I feel really sick. Um, would that be a, a classic uh, situation that someone might find themselves in where, they're, where they might be falling into this binge eating disorder category? You know, I think it's certainly possible. It really depends on what's going on. I mean, I think one being on a restrictive diet and then and then sort of losing it and going after everything. You know, if that happens once, I mean, that's that's almost normal behavior. You can certainly, you know, that makes sense. But if the, if it becomes habitual and if it's serving an, a you know a deep seated emotional need, you know, and becomes a pattern, then it's more of an issue. So you want to, you know, you definitely want to get some help and take a look at that. Are there correlations between people who have a disordered approach to their food and their eating and also, uh, say, mood or anxiety disorders? Um, Without a doubt. I actually had, you know, I'm comfortable saying that I've never met somebody with an eating disorder or disordered eating that doesn't have anxiety, depression, um, obsessive compulsive disorder, trauma, all kinds of other, you know, substance use, they're, they're coincident with all kinds of other behavioral and mental health conditions. And I know from my own experience that I was incredibly cunning at getting away with particularly the purging. So my mum has since said to me, I suspected something was happening, but I couldn't catch you. And I would have all these elaborate plans to be able to binge in secret and then purge in secret as well. Um, If somebody is listening in this, they feel like, oh, gosh, that's my daughter or son or partner or friend. Um, What are the signs that we can look for when it comes to disordered eating? Well, in terms of of, um, of binging and purging, I mean, a lot of times the parent will notice that the child is eating, you know, what's kind of considered more than a normal amount of food. It's like, I mean, and, and you'll hear parents say, oh, my kid can eat seven sloppy joes, you know, and then, 
and, and but their normal weight, and this happens regularly. And then you start to observe that they get up at the end of every meal. They disappear at the end of every meal. And there's there's there also may be certain situations. I mean, it's as you said, if you, you have to make, you've got to be on top of this. You have to plan. You can't go places where you're not going to be able to get someplace and purge. So you really kind of have to structure your time and your life around what you're going to be able to do. And if you're not going to be able to do, you know, to, to complete the, the cycle of the behaviors, then you're, you're probably not going to do it at all, or you're just not going to go. So it definitely will, you know, as it gets, and, and these things, as I'm sure you know, it's, it gets worse over time. These things, they don't ever get better. You know, it gets to be a bigger part of your life and you have to go to more extreme measures to try to make sure. So, so any of this, of this secretive stuff or things that there's also, um, you can also, if you look at your kids and I mean, a lot of kids, um, self-harm and cut themselves, that's a really, um, a normal behavior. It's, it's, it happens frequently, but the knuckles, you know, if, if people are using their, their fingers to purge, their knuckles will often be, um, you know, kind of abrased. So, so if there's cuts and things and, and they don't know what that, and, and the parent looks at that and thinks, I wonder where that comes from. Um, that also can be a kind of a telltale sign. Hmm. That's really interesting. I'm thinking back to what did my knuckles <laughs> used to look like? <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> yeah. It depends on, on how, you know, some people have really an easy, it, it it's a, sometimes people have an easy time of it. They're, it's not difficult. Some people have it more. Some for some people, it's much more challenging. So it, it's across the board. It is different ways for different people. Now you're doing some research at the moment around uh, the correlation between SIBO and eating disorders. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what that study or what that research is looking at. That's a good question, hey? I've got loads more just like this coming up after this break. We're back in a moment. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, you're doing some research at the moment around uh, the correlation between SIBO and eating disorders. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what that study or what that research is looking at. So because because the, um, well, I would say over 60% of the people that admit to treat, to residential treatment um, at my facility have had have IBS or symptoms like that, leaky gut or, you know, gastroparesis or, or other attendant um, GI symptomology, but primarily IBS. So since IBS and SIBO are so, have such a high correlation, was it upwards of 84%, um, I start to think, well, there must be quite a number of people that admit to treatment for eating disorders that have SIBO because they all report these same symptoms. So some of this is, may very well be due to SIBO. So um, I was able to to get support to be able to do the lactulose breath test on a during a pilot study. So when I have clients admit that have these kind of symptoms, then I try to I try <laughs> to do the lactulose breath test to see if I come up with a positive result for SIBO. And um, a couple of interesting, really interesting things have happened in the course of trying to to launch this project. And the first thing is I've only gotten three tests done successfully, which which is a really disappointingly known low number and, and certainly not what I expected. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you in a minute what the challenges have been, but they've certainly all been positive, which is not really surprising. And maybe there's other reasons and other factors that could account for that. But, but certainly the suspicion about whether they would test positive for SIBO has been borne out. Um, so that's very interesting in and of itself. But it's really challenging to give clients in eating disorder treatment the lactulose breath test because of the dietary, it's, I mean, it's, it's, I, I hesitate to even call it restrictive, but you have to fast for a number of hours before the test and you have to eat specific, you know, specific, you know, restrictive diet before that. Now you would think that people that come to eating disorder treatment wouldn't mind this, but they have a tremendous resistance 
to being told to eat in a particular way, even for the purpose of doing a, a medical test. So it's been really, really challenging in terms of getting people on board with performing the test. And, and then if they, if I wait, because I don't want to, there's, there's kind of a, I have a little bit of a ethical concerns about saying, okay, now you've come to treatment and I'm going to be putting you on a really balanced approach to eating. And, but first we're going to do this other thing. <laughs> so, so there's a little bit of a, you know, I really want to help them. And that, and I think that that's the most compelling uh, motivation, but, but, but it's, a, and as people get further in their recovery, then they don't want to do anything to jeopardize that. So it's, it hasn't been the easiest thing to get people to actually be tested. So, but I'm certainly looking forward to, you know, to however, however long it takes to try to accumulate a, n a number of individuals so that I can test them. And they're, they're, um, not everybody is a good candidate for this. You know, they're just not appropriate for, for different reasons, but, um, but I'm going to keep at it because I'm convinced that the, that the numbers of, of these particular patients that have SIBO are going to be pretty dramatic. Mm, yeah. That's fascinating. And it really makes you think, well, what, what came first? Was the SIBO presence that led to a disordered approach to eating or was the disordered eating the thing that led to the SIBO? Exactly. Um, exactly. Fascinating. Because, because if you're having just what you mentioned earlier, if you eat something and you, and you get a stomach ache when you're younger and you cut that out of your diet and you do, and you do that you know, in a fairly dramatic way so that you've restricted a number of foods, are you going to affect your gut biome in such a way that it's going to create the conditions for SIBO later? And so, so it was the, you know, whatever was going on bacterially in your system that created the symptom that created the restriction that then developed into disordered eating. So it's, it's very difficult to tease out, you know, which came first. Yeah. And I, I think back to my own life history. And as a kid, I clearly remember feeling sick from food. Mm -hmm. And so I would avoid certain foods, particularly dairy. I really could see the correlation between dairy, even as a young kid. Mm -hmm. But back in the eighties, the doctors would all say, well, you have to give your daughter dairy. Right. That's the only way she gets her calcium. So mum would give me cups of milk and I'd always have to have a, a chaser of something really strongly flavored that I could wipe the taste of milk out of my mouth, but I would have a stomach ache from it. And I'd say, mummy, I feel so sick. My tummy hurts. And so I became really funny with certain food from a young age because it made me feel sick. And then and then fast forward to when puberty hit and I remembered a lot of the trauma that I'd been subject to at the hands of my uncle that kicked into my bulimia. And then as I've then got older and then done all of these different diets, like you say, with doctors saying, oh, maybe you've just got a problem with gluten and dairy, take them out. And then becoming zealous around my avoidance of those substances but I've definitely once I stopped the purging I still did binging so I I think back to my own history and I think well if I'd been assessed for SIBO as say a five or six year old and I'd been tested positive and been treated for it could I have prevented a lot of the disordered eating I've gone through um, because I had dealt with the underlying issue, which was that food made me feel quite sick. We will never know. Right. We can't go back in time. Yeah. But I hope that doing it, um, interviews like today, we can be bringing this to the forefront of awareness for my listeners so that for those of them that have kids that are perhaps saying, mummy, my tummy hurts, that they can be thinking, okay, let's, let's think about what we can do now before they become a teenager right. with um, the light – greater chance of disordered eating occurring right when you're um with your studies are you also looking at some of the other um uh, issues that people might um, experience such as uh, you know are you seeing with people that they might have a difference or a change in bacteria or are there structural issues that you're seeing are present in um, greater numbers in the disordered eating patients than the average population. Well, I think that that's certainly the next will be the next phase. I think that's very and a very important piece. I mean, I um, 
it, it, just thinking, I was ta- talking the other day to, to another person that you've actually had on your podcast I was listening to, Megan Taylor, and she, um, we were talking about the act of purging and what that might do anatomically to somebody. I mean, if you, I mean, you know from your own experience, it's like it can be very violent. Um, and, it, and even though a lot of the physiological effects might just be in the esophagus, um, can they, you know, could there be an effect on the small intestine or, or on the jejunum or, or somewhere else where there might might be some tearing or some, you know, certainly some, obviously there's some motility impact. So, so how do all these pieces fit together in terms of affecting what's happening in the gut generally? So, I mean, I would love to be able to explore further and see what, what, what are the other, you know, what happened, where did, where did this come from and what are the, what are the specifics? I mean, the methanobacter smithy, I mean, that's, that's brevi. That's something that we, you know, we already have established. It's, you know, it's definitely ch- changed in people with anorexia. That's pretty well established. And, um, and then there's some changes. Actually, some changes that happen in in uh, people with binge eating disorder that are similar to anorexia, which is interesting. So there may be some food absorption issues with both of those populations. With which I think, um, I think there's a lot of research that are being done with that currently. So uh, I think there's so much more that we need to learn that's going to be specifically applicable to treating people with eating disorders and really helping them, especially as they start to to refeed. It's like if you're having difficulty, I mean, what are the, you know, a lot of people when they try to refeed from something like anorexia, it's not easy to get them on a regimen that's going to allow them to, I mean, you can get people to gain weight if you feed them, you know, certain amounts of calories over a certain period of time, but, but are they going to be actually nutritionally rehabilitated from doing that? And what are the, what is the balance that has to be introduced? And do we need the pre and probiotics in order to supplement that? And if, if they do have SIBO, you know, at what point do we need to treat for that to make sure that we can maximize the gains that we get from the nutritional rehabilitation? So there's a lot of things that we need to know more about before we're going to be able to effectively treat this. Mm. Amongst the SIBO community, there are, it's very common for people to become very underweight um, through a combination of factors, through malabsorption of nutrients, through food avoidance, um, and obviously the, there's a lot of fear of food that occurs. Um, for people that are listening that fall into that category and, and they're thinking, well, you know, every time I try to eat something new, I have really bad symptoms. How do you approach that with your with your um, current patients around the refeeding, particularly when refeeding or bringing new food in triggers a whole host of symptoms that perhaps those people have been actively avoiding? One of the things that, that, that we try to support our patients with, and I think this is really, really key, and, and I think this is true for any kind of healthcare professional, is that, is that unfortunately or discomfort is part of this process. There is no possible way that I can help somebody get well and it's just going to be easy and breezy and they're not going to have struggle or suffer in any way. I mean, that, that isn't what recovery is like. And I mean, every, anyone and you and anybody else that's been through this process knows this is not an easy process. So, so the physical discomfort is part of the issue. So when I, when I, when I encourage people, obviously I've got people, you know, I test them. I mean, if you've got a gluten allergy, I'm not going to force you to eat gluten. That would be inappropriate. But, but if you just suspect that you might, and you've just cut it out because it's really good that I have this whole food group that I don't eat, I'm going to encourage you to eat this again. Now, when you begin to eat this, you may very well experience symptoms. Now, whether they're physiological or psychological, it's, it's really going to be difficult to tease that out. But, um, but I think, what happens is, is, is you are, if you have an eating disorder, an eating disorder is a lethal condition. I mean, it, it's the number one uh, mental mental illness killer of all of the mental health diseases. So, if you've got an eating disorder and you don't manage to overcome this in some way, you know that will take you out just as soon as an, as any physiological disease. So, if we're going to help treat your eating disorder, one of the ways we're going to have to do this is by broadening out your experience with food and. We're going to experiment with this, and we're really going to teach you that these foods are not, you know, they're not poison. You know, even though you've been told that sugar is poison, you can actually eat this. Now, you don't have to eat massive quantities of it. You don't have to eat it every day, but there has to be a place in your diet. You know, there's no things that are bad, you know, because looking at different foods as bad is what feeds the eating disorder. So, um, so there's, you know, there's a lot of complicated, that's why I said it's so complex. There's so many layers to this and some of them are physical and anatomical and some of them are psychological and emotional. And we have to really come at it from all the different 
angles, but to support people and saying, this is really difficult. But if you want a life, if you want a wonderful quality of life and you want friends and you want to, and you're going to go to McDonald's and eat French fries and because that's going to be part of being a teenager. And you're going to want to go to, as you, as we said, a kid's birthday party, or you're going to want to go out, you know, after work with your friends. I mean, if you're going to want to have a full life, you know, food and, and, and eating things are part of that experience. And, and if you don't want to miss any of this, we're going to have to find a way to fit all of this together in a way that's going to be supportive. So it's a pretty tall order, but, but that's really what we're, what we're going for. Mm, it is. And, and having, um, gosh, I ride, I ride the roller coaster of food. <laughs> I probably will to the, to my dying breath, but, um, I'm at a really healthy place with, with my approach to food at this point in time, which is really great. And it's, what I can say is having come through to this point, having been so fearful of food and very disordered in my approach to food, and now I'm I'm not hating food or food groups, um, it's, a, it's a much more relaxed place to be because you don't spend so much energy worrying about food. You just get on with life. And I take the approach now of when I'm cooking at home, I'm going to eat um, as, you know, in what I consider as a really healthy, nutritious manner. But when I go out or if I go to a friend's house for dinner, I'm not going to worry about what I get served. I'm going to eat and enjoy the social situation. And so that may mean I have some gluten or I have some sugar or I have some dairy and that's okay because it's, it's, that's, what the occasion calls for. Um, you know, every now and then I might have a slice of cake and that's okay because that one slice of cake is not going to be the death of me like I used to fear the sugar that, you know, I used to, I used to be like, oh my gosh, if you ever eat sugar ever again, you will die. <laughs> Whereas now I think okay, one slice of cake once in a blue moon is fine. My body can cope with that. I'm, I'm not doing it every day it's fine. So it does take, um, just my anxiety levels have really decreased as I've relaxed my control mm. around my food. Anxiety is such a key piece to this. It's like, if you've ever gone to a dinner party where someone is actively um, engaged in disordered eating, it's really, really painful to be around them because they, it isn't just that they're not eating the food, although there's something about somebody not eating when everybody else is eating, but it's like they've, they've, they're not just withholding from the food, they're withholding themselves. They're holding back themselves and they're not sharing, they're not really participating in what's going on. And it's, it's just extraordinarily painful for, to have someone around and, because, and you can feel the pain that they're experiencing, even though they may not be consciously aware of it in that moment. Yeah, it is really, it is really tough. And I look back at myself and think, Oh gosh, I must have been a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of a pain in the neck in uh, when I've been in my heightened states. And it does. It, it, it's interesting you say um, uh, just the, the process of saying no. I felt that it it uh, gave me more power every time I said no. So I got stronger in my conviction every time I said no. So the first time I said no was hard. The second time was a little easier. The third time was even easier. And then by the time I was sort of standing on this um, pedestal of look how healthy I am, almost self-righteous. And uh, I'm sure I drove people up the wall. But if, <laughs> with if, you, that. but if you think about it, it's like you, you, what you're, you didn't, you couldn't say no when you were the victim of sexual trauma. You weren't in a place then to be able to say no, but you can say no to that food right now. So that's really the substitute for that. So rather than, you know, it, it's a way to try to care for yourself and take take power and possession of your own life. So it makes sense in a metaphoric sense. It's like, it's not a substitute for doing the work that enables you to take back your power, but you can absolutely see how saying, well, you know, I can't, I can't control what happened to me then, but I can certainly control what I'm eating right now. You, you can definitely. And uh, it's, it's been an interesting ride. That's for sure. Um, Diane, if somebody is listening to this and it's really resonating with them and they're thinking, okay, my approach is definitely not as um, healthy or relaxed as I think it could be. What's your recommendation for how people can go and seek help? Who should they be going and, and speaking to? Uh, I would I would recommend that they seek help from a, a certified eating disorder specialist. You know, you want to have you want to have a counselor, a psychologist, someone who has some expertise in treating people with eating disorders because they are a very specialized condition and they require you know really fine tuned diagnosis and treatment. So I would I would always recommend that somebody seek someone that um, 
that is really skilled in being able to treat people with eating disorders. You should be able to find somebody. I mean, there should be a, uh, online services that will let you do that. I know that on our website, there's actually a, a test, a questionnaire that enables you to um, kind of assess where you are and see if you really fit the category because a lot of times people are, you know, they don't want to discuss it with other people. They really want to kind of get a sense for themselves. So um, it's a good idea to get a, getting a sense of, of how much of an issue it is for yourself. Um, and then saying, and then becoming ready to say, listen, I, I really, I think I need to do something about this. I think this is just not, not working and it's not getting better. It's getting worse and my anxiety is pretty bad and, and my depression is pretty huge. So, so I think I'd really like to do something to pursue that. And also you really will need good nutritional support. So you need to be on a meal plan that's going to respect if you do have allergies and sensitivities, but allow you to broaden your perspective on what to eat and make sure that you're eating the, the nutritional balance that you need to, to be healthy. Yeah. Well, I've linked to the uh, that survey that you've got on your website in the show notes. So if you'd like to go and do that, um, by all means, head to the show notes and, and uh, take that quiz. I think that could be really beneficial and a great first step in, um, in getting the support that you need. And, and as someone that has been in the trenches with this for most of my life, uh, I tell you what, it is good when the, the grips of the disordered eating start to lessen and you can feel like you can live again. And I think also as a final point, you don't have to be uh, dealing with anorexia to have an eating disorder. Uh, there's so many, there's, it's so much broader than what the media portray anyway. And I hope that today's discussion with you, Diane, has helped um, bring some awareness to the, the different types of disordered eating. And, and, and finally, do people swing? Can you, do you see that people might say perhaps be in a binge eating phase and then they switch into um, an orthorexic phase and you know can you jump around between all of the types of disordered eating Absolutely. I would say that's, that's extremely common. I mean, a lot of times, and with, with kids, it's like they'll start out and they may begin restricting and they lose weight and their parents say, oh, no, 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 you're not going to do this and we're going to watch you eat. And then they, so they start to be vigilant and then they begin purging because, um, because they've been caught. So, I mean, but it's very common across the lifespan. And actually the most common, um, age group of people with eating disorders that are coming forward are people that are in their 40s and up. So so it really does persist across a lifetime. And, and it switches back from binging to restricting to exercising to orthorexia. It can go all over the place. And um, and it really, but, and the commonality of all of those things is the, is really the, the loneliness and the isolation and the shame and the sadness that accompanies all of the different manifestations of the eating disorder. So I certainly encourage people, if they think they've got anything going on with their relationship with food to get some, you know, to get some intervention and get some support. And, and it's also not unusual for people to need more than just counseling. I mean, that's why their residential treatment centers exist, because as we were talking at the beginning of the show, uh, it, it's really, really a very, very difficult thing to overcome on your own. So there's lots of levels of support that are available. So. Diane, thanks so much for coming on to the Healthy Gut Podcast today. Um, now, if people would like to reach out and connect with you or see, learn more about your centre, how can they do so? Uh, we have a wonderful website that gives a real a lot of resources, and uh, I am um, easily reachable on that, and it's simply www.mirasol.net. So you can reach me there and I'm on Twitter and um, I'm, I'm happy to talk to anybody that has any issues or questions about, about disordered eating or any of these other associated conditions. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for that. And all of those links are in the show notes. So you can just head there and, uh, and get Diane's contact details. But thank you so much once again for coming onto the show and talking about what I feel is a really important topic amongst the SIBO community, because so many of us are dealing with a disordered approach to our food and nutrition. So it's been wonderful learning more about it with you today. It's been wonderful to be here and I'm delighted to be able to talk about this and, and to be able to offer any kind of help to people that feel that they need it. That was Diane Fairhurst-Ryan. I hope you found today's show interesting. Gosh, it fascinated me and was such a big aha moment for me. Now, to get the transcription from today's show or to sign up as a Healthy Gut Podcast member so you can get the full transcription from today's show, all you need to do is head to thehealthygut.com forward slash podcast. 
And come say hi to us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Pinterest, Twitter and Google+. We're on all those platforms. Just look for us under The Healthy Gut. and We love hearing from you. And don't forget to leave a rating and review. It is so helpful for people who are interested in listening to the show and it helps them know this is the right place for them when they have SIBO. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Red Lemon Productions for the production and original music score of this podcast. To find out more about their services, head to redlemonproductions.com. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening.